Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Azurad. I'm the director of the Simon Center for Principles and Politics and the AWC Family Foundation fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to our Fall Kirk Lecture entitled, Does Christianity Have a Future in America? Now, far from me as a Canadian Jew to offer an answer to that question. But uh, anyone who understands the role that Christianity has played and continues to play in sustaining the American regime, you will remember that Tocqueville called religion the first of our political institutions, cannot help but worry. First, of course, there is the well-documented rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the growing share of the population, especially amongst the younger generations, that has grown alienated from Christianity and from mainstream religion more generally. And then, of course, there's the widespread corruption of Christianity, which Ross Douthat has brilliantly chronicled in his book, a book that I presume or hope many of you have read, uh, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. In it, Douthat retells the story of how basically heretical Christianity uh, came to dominate in America in the past few decades. Uh, the short story is there was a time when the Protestant churches, the Catholic church, the evangelical churches, and the black churches all preached, broadly speaking, Orthodox Christianity. And then beginning in the 60s, they started peddling debased versions of the Christian faith that stroke our egos, indulge our follies, and are completely unmoored from Scripture. I point this out because I, one thing I've always hear on the right is, oh, a great awakening is going to save us, you know. We don't need to do anything. God will come down and save us. We may have a great awakening, but there's no guarantee that the religion that will be awoken will be a reasonable one or an orthodox one. If anything, you could argue we are in the midst of a great awakening right now, and it's the great awakening. It's this secularized, fanatical, identitarian religion that really preserves the Christian categories of original sin and inherited guilt, but removes the possibility of redemption. In any case, to address these difficult uh, questions, we have here with us Ross Douthat, who I really don't think needs an introduction, so I'll say two quick sentences. Uh, in 2009, he became the youngest op-ed columnist in the history of the New York Times. He is widely acclaimed for his commentary on politics, religion, and culture, uh, especially on religion. I mean, there are very, very few people in America who have perches in elite institutions and represent traditional religion. Uh, he's the author of four books, including Bad Religion and also uh, To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. And in February, he will be publishing a book with the very enticing title, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Please join me in welcoming Ross Douthat. Thank you, David. 
Thank you, David, for that incredibly kind, um, possibly unmerited introduction. And thank you all for coming and taking time out of what I know is an exciting day in Washington, D.C., uh, as are all days in Washington, D.C. these days in this presidency, this full employment for pundit presidency. Which, um, sorry? Good stock market. A good stock market, yes, full employment for everyone, um, but especially pundits. So I'm going to talk for about 35 minutes or so on the theme uh, of the day, and then we can do a Q&A and conversation on religion, politics, or anything else that you guys would like to talk about. Um, but first, I'm going to have a drink of water. Um, <clears throat> so David suggested we should have a provocative title for this event, which is why we asked the question, does Christianity have a future? In America, and of course, the answer to that is yes, but that would be a very, very short talk, so I won't, I won't finish there. Um, but I think I'm, I'm going to suggest that Christianity's position in America has changed pretty dramatically over the last 50 or 60 or 70 years, um, tracing part of the story that David mentioned that I tried to tell in my last book, but one, I guess, Bad Religion. And I think that we can usefully think about the current religious situation in terms of a very different religious landscape from the one that obtained a few generations back. And so I'm going to try and do a sort of three-part talk where I give a quick sketch of where we used to be and how things changed, and then a quick sketch of the religious landscape today, and then a quick sketch of possible futures, um, including both futures in which... Christianity in some form reemerges in America and futures in which in some form the question asked in the title tiptoes a little bit more towards the negative. Um, so let's start in the past and I think a useful place to start is with a figure who was, whose beatification was just announced by my own Roman Catholic Church in the last few days, Fulton Sheen, uh, who was a potent and influential cultural figure in addition to being a Roman Catholic bishop in the 1940s, 50s, and 1960s, uh, first as a figure on radio and then as a figure on primetime television, where he occupied roughly a version of the space that's occupied today by Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil as a kind of dispenser of spiritual wisdom, philosophical advice, and so forth to a mass audience, but spiritual wisdom and philosophical advice that emerged out of a Roman Catholic faith that was not only sort of robust and traditional, but was even outfitted in the full pre-Vatican II regalia of a Catholic bishop right down to the big pectoral cross and everything else that appeared as Sheen showed up on your television set with a chalkboard where he would, you know, go down a list of at least somewhat complicated philosophical concepts and their relevance to the life of ordinary Americans circa 1955. Um, and Sheen was obviously a distinctive figure, as uh, you know, saints tend to be, but in many ways he was also a representative figure in the sense that he represented this particular moment in post-war religious America when there was a kind of convergence between the main strands of American Christianity. Um, and one of the arguments that I made in my book, and I guess we'll make again today, is that America has always been 
in many ways, a nation of heretics in the sense that it's never been a nation with a single established church. It's always been a nation of religious freelancers and entrepreneurs and enthusiasts. And the whole history of Christianity in America is rife with startup faiths and religions that start weird and become a little more normal over time and religious movements that flare up and die, sometimes in a very literal way in the case of the Shakers, um, and, but also religious traditions that sort of emerge and then are absorbed into the larger currents of American Christianity. But that absorption is crucial to the story, right? That the story of Christianity in America is we've always been a nation of heretics, but we've also always been a nation of strong traditional churches. Um, with the power of different churches and different denominations ebbing and flowing and waxing and waning with time, but with there always being some sense that there is not an established church, but some kind of religious establishment, which starts out as a primarily Protestant establishment and gradually encompasses <laughs> Roman Catholics as well. And if you look at the period after World War II, which was a period of real popular religious revival in American life, a period of church building and church planting and growing, growing church attendance and increasing congregations, it was also a period when the established forms of Christian faith seemed particularly robust and, again, sort of were in convergence with one another. Um, so the mainstreaming of Roman Catholicism, the fact that, that a figure like Sheen, who would have been seen as a sinister papist threat by many people circa 1887, could become a beloved primetime figure without getting rid of his Catholic distinctives, that was one sign of this trend. Another parallel sign would have been uh, the rise of a figure like Billy Graham, the embodiment of an evangelical Christianity that 30 or 40 years earlier had been seen as sort of irrelevant or kind of backwoods, day class A, rural phenomenon. But suddenly in the 50s, there's Graham holding his big crusades in major American cities in Chicago and New York and Boston, hanging out with various embodiments of the American re religious establishment, getting favorable write-ups in the New York Times, one of my favorite details of the period. Um, for personal reasons, and, and generally demonstrating that an evangelical Christianity could be a robust and influential force even in a globalized and technologically proficient civilization. So you have Graham in parallel to Sheen, and then you have figures as different but also as similar in certain ways in their theology as Martin Luther King and Reinhold Niebuhr, who respectively represent the African-American church um, and sort of the mainline Protestantism that had liberalized dramatically in the 1920s and 30s, but under the influence of Niebuhr and other figures had moved back towards what was called neo-Orthodoxy, which was an attempt to basically reassert certain primary aspects of Christianity, including a belief in original sin um, within churches that had been heavily politicized across the 20s and 30s. And you, you don't want to overstate this convergence. Um, Niebuhr, for instance, was not a particular fan of Billy Graham, and obviously strong Catholic Protestant divisions remained. And you know, you had famous books written about the danger of encroaching Catholic power in America in the late 1940s. And obviously, you know, those debates were still live when John F. Kennedy ran for president in 1960. But still, if you looked at the landscape. American Christianity 70 years ago, and you said, where is the religious center? 
where's the religious center of the United States? You would pick a point somewhere between Niebuhr, Graham, and Fulton Sheen, all of them embodiments of sort of small c conservative forms of Christianity, not at all necessarily politically conservative, but but sort of tradition-minded intent on on in sort of building and preserving institutions and intent on maintaining connections with historic Christianity. Um, and then you have King sort of outside that center somewhat, but representing a kind of prophetic force that was itself rooted in, in certain ways, the most marginalized, but in other ways, the most robust form of American Christianity than as in certain ways now, the African-American church. So that was that world. Um, <clears throat> if you were to describe, if you were to do the same thing today, if you were to look around 21st century America and say, where is the American religious center? I would suggest that instead of finding a point in between Graham and King and Niebuhr, you would probably want to pick a point sort of somewhere in between Oprah Winfrey and Joel Osteen. Um, there's no need to laugh. Um, this, this is perfectly serious, right? With Oprah and Osteen in certain ways being different figures with somewhat different audiences, Osteen is sort of a red state megachurch pastor, and Oprah is sort of a blue state sort of spiritual but not necessarily religious, but maybe religious um, kind of self-help revivalist. And those differences, those differences matter. It's not a coincidence that Kanye West, um, in his sort of self-reinvention as a Christian evangelist, went to Osteen's church recently uh, and was probably more comfortable there in his current, his current incarnation than he might be with Oprah, but he could be comfortable with Oprah as well. And Oprah might identify as a Christian. Some, you know, it's not, it, it's not clear that the, there isn't sort of a clear um, theological and denominational line that you can draw around really either of these figures. But what they have in common is a, a form of religion that is still religious. The phrase spiritual but not religious is sort of useful as a cultural descriptor, but it doesn't actually make sense. People who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious usually just mean I'm religious, but I don't like the traditional institutional forms of faith. Um, but so, you, yeah, you have this center that is more populist, more sort of uh, pop in the sort of pop culture sense of the term, less theologically rigorous, I think it's fair to say, more disconnected from any kind of traditional denominational structures or institutional forms, and, um, and more individualist, right? That is sort of, I think, the basic, the basic change that the core, the sort of central forms of American religiosity and spirituality are much more likely to emphasize the individual, the individual experience, the self, the God within, than they were a few generations ago. Um, so I'll give a quick account of how I think we got from there to here. Um, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of forces, but the four that I tend to pick out that I think are most important start with the obvious one, which is the sexual revolution, which creates a big divide that hadn't really existed before between sort of middle-class morality, uh, sort of a normal person's sexual morality, and New Testament sexual ethics. So if you go back prior to the birth control pill and the divorce revolution, 
it's not that most people were virgins when they got married. It's not that nobody ever had affairs. It's not that nobody ever used contraception. You know, it's, it's not that America or the West were filled with rigorous Christians leading lives of chasteness and celibacy. But it is true that there was a sense in which there was a kind of cultural, there was a sense that um, traditional Christian sexual ethic matched up to a kind of cultural common sense that it was reasonable to say that you shouldn't sleep with someone before marriage, and if you did, it should be someone you were on your way to marrying. It was reasonable to say that divorce was a bad idea um, and that it should be avoided. And then, obviously, certain topics like homosexuality were sort of off the table of middle-class, normal kitchen table conversation entirely. And that all changed uh, across the course of about a generation, and ushered in a new era where the sort of conventional wisdom on Christian sexual morality is that either it's a nice ideal that no one could possibly live up to, or that it is a cruel, misogynist, homophobic, exploitative force that we are well rid of. And none of the Christian churches, I think, have known how to deal with this fundamental shift. There have been churches that have adapted to it, and tried to rewrite doctrine and moral teaching. There have been churches that have tried to sort of resist and build a bunker against the culture. And I think you can argue that the latter sort has been more successful than the former, but neither has been culturally successful in the sense that neither has sort of reclaimed a robust, um, a robust religious voice on sexual matters that is sort of heeded by the lukewarmly religious, the non-practicing, the sort of normal, everyday American, not the strange sort of person who gives talks about religion at the Heritage Foundation. Um, so that shift is, I think, obviously central. But then along with that shift, there are three others. Um, one is just, you know, alongside sex, you have money. You have the reality that American life just became much, much richer after World War II than really any civilization had ever been before. And Christianity always has sort of gone a little uneasily with riches and wealth and money and sort of um, and um, the sort of gospel of upward mobility. And you can see, I think, in the most successful forms of early 21st century religious faith in different ways in both Oprah and Osteen, a response to this, a sort of adaptation, not unlike some of the adaptations made on sexual ethics, where the sort of the sort of austerity and emphasis on poverty and renunciation in um, the Bible is replaced with more of an emphasis on the idea that God wants you to be rich, or if that's too crude, then God wants you to have American well-being in the year of our Lord 2019, which means having money, but generally means something more general and therapeutic, having to do with wellness and self-care and other things like that. Um, so there's so there's sex, there's money, there's political polarization, right? The reality that defines life in Washington D.C. also defines how Americans approach all sort of public arguments and debates. So the fact that it used to be that a Baptist would be uncomfortable with his daughter marrying a Lutheran and vice versa, and now a Republican might be uncomfortable with his son marrying a Democrat and vice versa, that change reflects the fact that polarization has made political identities more important than religious ones and has subsumed religious identities into political categories and ideologies in ways that inevitably weakens religious faith. 
So we've gone from a world where Billy Graham and Martin Luther King were sort of political figures, because leading religious figures are obviously political in certain ways, but not primarily partisan figures, to a world where it, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson run for president, Pat Robertson runs for president, and um, it's sort of taken for granted that there's a religious right and a religious left that are defined as much by their leftness and their rightness as by their religiosity. And it's really hard to find a place to stand as a religious figure where you aren't defined as part of Team Red or part of Team Blue, which is so much the worse for religion. And then finally, I think there's the effect of globalization and communications revolutions on people's assumptions about authority and institutions. And again, this isn't just a religious phenomenon. It's visible in a general um, a general public suspicion of any kind of authority, of any kind of institution. But I think it's particularly sharp in the case of religion. It begins with TV and has accelerated with the internet. And none of it makes for, none of it leads to sort of atheism per se, or a belief that, um, you know, a hard Darwinian materialism is a correct description of the universe. That's not what it breeds. Instead, it breeds a sense that the world is so big and diverse and complicated that my parents' church can't possibly have the monopoly on truth that my parents think it did or that my grandparents think it did. And so out of that, you get a drift, again, towards individualism and relativism in how people form their religious sensibilities and consciousnesses and a sense of religion as something that is supposed to be cobbled together as a kind of bricolage um, to suit your own preferences, your own lifestyle choices, your own personal needs. Uh, and that might include attending a particular manifestation of historic Christianity on Sunday morning, but it might not. And either way, the important thing is sort of your choices and your adaptations rather than some sort of revealed truth. So that's, I think, a rough story of what happened. And I think what um, David mentioned about the idea of a great awakening is actually a another also useful way of thinking about this, right? Which is that in certain ways, what happened in America in the 60s and 70s, um, even more than the great awakening of today, looks like a traditional great awakening. You had people living in communes and running away from home to, you know, experiment with consciousness, altering rituals and substances. Um, and you had new spiritual gurus and leaders arising. You had a whole, you know, a whole wave of ferment. And you can see this in, you know, public opinion data on religion, right? In the late 1950s, at the peak of sort of institutional strength for American Christianity, if you polled people and asked them, have you had a personal experience of God? Uh, I think I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but let's say 35% of Americans said yes. Flash forward a couple generations to a world where institutional religion is weaker and more Americans say yes to that question, 50 or 60 percent. So you, you get this real shift in religious consciousness over that period. But what makes it different than prior awakenings is that the institutional churches that exist, for the most part, with some evangelical exceptions, don't really find a way to channel it. Instead, it sort of, sorry, diffuses into the culture and has lots of cultural influence, but doesn't reinvigorate existing institutions, and it doesn't forge new ones. Um, 
you know, if you look at the 19th century, if you look at the religious freelancers of that era, Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith, right? These are strange mystical figures who nonetheless form institutions that over a period of time become incredibly powerful culture-shaping forces in American life. And in the case of the Mormons, remain so today. Christian science, somewhat less so. If you look at comparable figures from the 60s and 70s, you just don't have, you have some institution building, but nothing on the same scale. And, you know, just to take a figure in the news these days, um, Marianne Williamson, right, who is sort of running for president, who is sort of an embodiment, not as important to one as Oprah, of this uh, the sort of spirituality that emerges out of the 60s and 70s. And, you know, she becomes a big figure in the 80s and 90s. Marianne Williamson is in many ways incredibly influential, but there's no church of Marianne Williams. There's no sort of Christian science equivalent of, uh, uh, or no, excuse, excuse me, no equivalent to Christian science to which she is the Mary Baker Eddy. There are, you know, reading groups and centers and, you know, a few institutional manifestations. But, I mean, she herself um, still identifies uh, first and foremost as a Jew and doesn't say I'm starting a new religion, which speaks well of her modesty. And I will admit to having a soft spot for Marianne Williamson, but it says something important and not necessarily positive about the way the Great Awakening of the 60s and 70s played out, that it didn't either reconnect with older forms of institutional faith or found new ones. Instead, it just sort of led to this much, much more individualist religious culture. Which brings me to the present landscape, right? So if the religious center then was Sheen, Graham, Niebuhr, and King, it made sense to analyze American religion in the 50s in terms of denominations and churches to say you have a mainline, you have evangelical and fundamentalist churches, you have Roman Catholicism, you have the black church, and then you have some other groups that sort of have relationships to those larger constellations. That kind of analysis doesn't really make sense for American life today. Not that denominational differences haven't disappeared, not that there aren't still some you know, distinctives between distinctive differences um, between, you know, evangelicalism in the Bible Belt and Roman Catholicism as it decays in the Northeast and booms in the Southwest. Those those analytic categories still matter to some extent. But if you're just zooming out and looking at American religion from the 20,000 or 30,000 foot level, you would say, no, we should analyze things probably in terms of three big categories. The first category is this center that I've just described, which is a center that is not secular, not even remotely secular, that is intensely spiritual, that believes in the supernatural, believes in God or something it calls God, believes in the possibility that that God can be encountered through prayer or meditation, believes that that God or some supernatural reality intervenes in human life, encompasses a f certain forms of Christian faith, Joel Osteen's included, also encompasses some realms of what we would call sort of new age, um, new age faith, um, but basically is a zone that combines metaphysical belief with substantial individualism, a belief that the metaphysical realities are real, but the primary way to encounter them is through your own personal exploration rather than through submission to any kind of religious tradition or authority. You may participate in the tradition 
as part of your personal quest. The tradition may be important to you, but it is not the dominating or def- the dominant or defining force in your religious life. And the example that I like to cite as sort of a representative text is Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, which um, became a movie with Julia Roberts. The book is better. And the book is basically Augustine's Confessions for a Radically Individualist Religious Age, where um, Elizabeth Gilbert has a life crisis as sort of a successful upper-middle-class married woman, ends up leaving her husband and going on a sort of around-the-world odyssey that includes eating a lot of pasta but not going to Mass in Rome, that's the eat part, and having intense spiritual experiences in an ashram in India, that's the pray part, and finding love, albeit temporarily as it turned out, with a handsome Brazilian divorcee in Bali, that's the love part. And what's striking about the book, if you come to it with fresh eyes, is how authentic and sincere the spiritual portion is, right? Her descriptions of her religious experiences are raw, and if you read a lot of literature on spiritual and religious experiences, they're entirely authentic. This isn't just some sort of yuppie quest where you throw a little incense and feel good about yourself. She's having, you know, whatever real spiritual experiences are, she's having them. But what's striking is that they don't lead to conversion, let alone submission. It's not that she goes to India, has these experiences, and says, now I'm going to become a Hindu or a Buddhist. It's that she incorporates those experiences and pieces of her own Protestant heritage into a radically individualist worldview where it's important for her to forgive herself for leaving her husband and sort of move on to whatever stage of sort of personal evolution is next. That, I think, is the American religious center right now. And it might take somewhat more Christian forms for people who are formed in a less secular milieu than Elizabeth Gilbert, but that's, that's the middle. That's, that's what, what binds us together as a nation religiously are those kind of beliefs, for better or worse. And then you have the flanks, um, the other two parts. So that's sort of a spiritual world picture. Another flank is a more secular world picture. This is the world picture that is sort of less popular among the country as a whole, but pretty powerful in elite institutions, academia, institutions like my own newspaper. Um, It's not a sort of Richard Dawkins-level atheist world picture. Uh, It believes in the social uses and advantages of religion. It is willing to go with religion a certain distance if you can come up with a good study on how meditation or prayer is good for your brain chemistry, as long as you can root the benefits of religion in some political goal or some strictly material reality, people who hold this world picture are fine with it. But it is deeply resistant to and allergic to the supernatural and the metaphysical. And that's where it's different from the Oprah Osteen worldview. Um, And this worldview, I think, has sort of an obvious contradiction at its heart in the sense that it has preserved in some form um, basically biblical and Christian ideas about sort of equality and social justice. Uh, I'm not using the term pejoratively. I'm using it to mean social justice as a, as a sincere and important reality. But it combines those views with a, a sort of material world picture that is, that is sort of material and materialist and Darwinian and non-supernatural. And it struggles to make its political and social moralism fit together with its sort of um, 
somewhat darker view of what human beings actually are and what purpose or lack thereof the cosmos might have. And that, but, and that's sort of its weak point, but it's a weak point I think that people are very content, or if not content, at least willing to live with because the alternatives seem frightening, either a return to sort of traditional religious faith, which is out of the question, or sort of, you know, a kind of general supernaturalism, which seems implausible, or um, a return to the utopianisms, the secular utopianisms of the 20th century. And I think you can see, you can understand a lot of elite thinking over the last 60 or 70 years as basically conditioned by a sense that, well, we went beyond Christianity and we really didn't like what we discovered there. What we discovered was basically Auschwitz and the Gulag. And having made that discovery, we want to retreat a little bit, not, but not all the way, and we want to sort of stay in this halfway house of a materialist metaphysics, but a residually Christian moralism. And um, Hilaire Belloc's line, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse, is basically, I think, what holds that sort of residual Christian world picture in place among the otherwise secular portion of America. And then finally, you have the third group, which I guess I belong to, probably a few people in this room do as well, um, which I'm not sure there's a perfect name for it. You could call it sort of a, the biblical group, except that it includes, I think at this point, observant Muslims and other, other people beyond sort of the old Judeo-Christian phrase. But basically, it consists of people who believe in a religious authority outside themselves, whether that means sola scriptura for Protestants or Jewish tradition for the Orthodox or uh, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, whatever that may be at the moment for Roman Catholics. <laughs> apologies, apologies. Uh, my book is available at a discount on Amazon.com. Still relevant. Um, but it is, it's, it's people who believe, who believe the same things about the supernatural and the spiritual and metaphysical as Oprah and Joel Osteen, but also believe that there is a traditional authority that should control, control and constrain their personal choices, their moral lives, and how they encounter the supernatural. So don't go, people in this world picture would be very uncomfortable with, say, using a Ouija board, just to pick an example that was uh, in my mind over Halloween because of some reading I was doing and conversations I was having. But that's, so that's sort of the third, that's the third wing. And you can understand, I think, a lot of American cultural politics, a lot of culture war debates in terms of how that sort of spiritual center swings back and forth between the secular pole and the biblical, orthodox, whatever you want to call it, pole. And so you'll have debates like the debate over same-sex marriage where the sort of traditionally religious just end up totally isolated because people in the spiritual middle while, you know, they might have some sort of, you know, residual sympathy for the views of traditional Protestant and Catholic bodies on the question, and they may be, you know, they wouldn't want to see Beto O'Rourke tax churches that don't conduct same-sex weddings to death. Nonetheless, they basically have, a, you know, an individualist frame in which the traditional opposition to same-sex marriage doesn't make any sense at all. So, 
the sort of the sort of conservative flank ends up isolated. But then you have an issue like abortion, whose valence is somewhat different, and where you have this sort of deep conflictedness within that religious center that keeps politics sort of swinging uh, back and forth in interesting ways. Um, but that's, yeah, I think that's an account of where things stand now. And so the question that I'll finish with is what could change? I mean, one possibility is not that much could change. One possibility is that this landscape, while it was created by a pretty dramatic shift in the 60s and 70s and has been sort of accelerated or sort of ratified by some of the shifts that David mentioned, the rise of the nuns recently, the sort of disaffiliation from traditional churches by younger Americans, we could be at kind of a stable point um, in the sense that if you look at sort of intense religiosity, it hasn't declined nearly as much as lukewarm religiosity. So there is a sort of somewhat stable core for the traditional churches to draw on and to provide a certain kind of diffused energy into the religious center. And sort of, you know, secularism has, as I mentioned, some pretty obvious internal weaknesses that limit its appeal to normal people outside the academy and the cultural elite. And, you know, people like Oprah and they like Joel Osteen. And, you know, Elizabeth, when people have religious experiences and they aren't hyper-intellectual weirdos, they tend to gravitate towards those forms of faith. Elizabeth Gilbert has her religious experience and ends up as sort of part of Oprah's revival tour, basically. Kanye West uh, becomes a Christian in full, and he's up on stage with Osteen. He's, you know, he's not, he's not hanging out with the Catholic integralists as much as they would like to have him. <laughs> and... So that, su that suggests there could be a certain stability. And uh, if you go on Amazon and pre-order my next book, you can get an account of the, basically the case for sustainable decadence, stability in decadence as a possible feature of American life, not just now but going forward. But let me suggest a couple m less stable possibilities. One possibility is that one possibility is the possibility of a kind of Christian, a real Christian revival, a great awakening rooted in the resilience of that sort of biblical orthodox wing in American life and the weaknesses of both the current religious center and the secular wing. Um, and I've talked about what I think are the intellectual, the key intellectual weakness of the secular wing. I think the weakness of this individualist religious center is less intellectual than sociological. Um, I think, you know, the problem with deinstitutionalized forms of religious faith is that they don't do the work that religious traditions and institutions have historically done in American life and not only in American life. They don't do the Tocquevillian thing that uh, American conservatives like to talk about, maybe too much, but basically for good reason, right? Because there is a kind of story of American life where our churches and religious institutions play a <laughs> crucial, centering, stabilizing, social capital building role. As they decline, they don't play that role. People attending the Church of Oprah don't get the goods of institutional faith in the same way that Presbyterians and Baptists did 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. And the result is, in part, what we see in a lot of America right now 
growing isolation, alienation, family breakdown, family fragmentation, small families, fewer marriages, drug addiction, suicide, and more and more people growing old alone. And in that sense, you can imagine a world where traditional Christianity makes a kind of twofold comeback. It makes a comeback in part because while there are obviously points of weakness and debate in the Christian synthesis or the varying Christian syntheses, there is, I think, an integrity to the Christian world picture and a map up onto reality in the Christian world picture that is stronger uh, than the way that the sort of current secular liberal world picture maps onto reality. So that that combined with the fact that Christian churches and religious institutions generally offer people community in a way that the current religious center doesn't, that combination, I think, is enough of, an, of a space where you can at least imagine in a few generations' time a kind of rebuilding of traditional Christian, institutional Christian influence on society that happens both at sort of the highbrow intellectual level and um, at the level of, you know, let's say the sort of zones of social decay in American life that are so evident in many parts of the country. Um, so from a the sort of Christian perspective, I guess that would be the case for optimism and the case for answering the title uh, question of this talk decisively in the negative. But there's another possibility. I mean, there are many possibilities, but there's one, one more possibility which I'll offer, which is that, you know, in my book on this subject, which I wrote seven years ago, I laid a really heavy stress on the idea that America is not really a post-Christian country, that we are heretical fundamentally rather than post-Christian, that the most important forms of sort of pop spirituality in American life, even when they, many of them do identify as Christian, and even when they don't, they're still drawing water from Christian wells, was the metaphor that I use. Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code depends on cultural fascination with the person of Jesus of Nazareth for its wild conspiracy theory to make any sense. Deepak Chopra and other New Age authors are always trying to recruit Jesus into their pantheon. The sort of fascination with Jesus of Nazareth, this sort of residual influence of a Christian world picture, even on the most secular progressives, the return of sort of Christian ideas about guilt and expiation, even in the secular awakening. All of this suggests that America has not moved beyond Christianity in a meaningful way, even as our Christian institutions have weakened. But every author has to revise his thesis with events. And I will say that over the last seven or eight years, I've been more impressed by the post-Christian features in our religious landscape than I would have been a decade ago. Um, and I think these are visible on the left in some of the this sort of integration of, you know, the sort of pagan New Age fringe um, with militant progressive politics, which, you know, takes sort of absurd forms like the witches hexing Brett Kavanaugh's nomination but I think shows up certainly as powerfully as it's done since the 70s, right? There was sort of a wave in the 70s of astrological fascination and sort of 
genuinely post-Christian religious flirtations that diminished, I think, over the subsequent generation and now has made kind of a comeback and is also visible on the far right, too, in sort of literal forms of, you know, there are sort of alt-right neo-pagan dudes on the internet trying to recruit people. But even when it's not that literal, there is in sort of far-right identity politics a kind of post-Christian post-Christian intimations, I think I'd say, that resemble in certain ways some of the some of the post some of the post-Christian features of right-wing politics that you've got on the European continent in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and you know, we've and I mean you can even see this sort of in the evolution of um, the evolution of how both political parties approach religious matters, right? That the Democratic Party, while it still contains this incredibly strong religious base, mostly among African Americans and Hispanics, has a sort of, you know, secular slash pantheist elite, which inevitably has an influence on the party in ways that make even Barack Obama seem more religious than a lot of elite Democrats might be comfortable with going forward. And then on the right, you have a, a different mode. It's a mode of sort of a Christianity that's maybe too conscious of its own weakness that ends up in this kind of transactional mentality where you have to make these bargains with a figure like Donald Trump, but sort of more generally with a post-Christian landscape in order to protect yourself from the left. And both of that di those dynamics, I think, do reflect not just heresy, as I defined it, but a kind of de-Christianization. So if you accept that that might be a real thing, if you imagine a future of disruption, a future of dramatic change, you might say, well, maybe there is a post-Christian American religion waiting to come of age and waiting to unite the less Christian parts of the spiritual center and the secular elite that's sort of in search of a metaphysical world picture. Maybe somewhere in between the mixture of you know, neo-pagan and Wiccan flirtations and the real pantheist tradition in American intellectual life, going back to Whitman and Emerson, and some sort of Silicon Valley-based, you know, techno-futurist quasi-religion. Maybe out of all of those elements and more, you could sort of cook up a, a sort of future cult of American life that, that is decisively post-Christian. Now, the, the trouble is when you try and imagine this, it gets ridiculous very quickly. It's, you know, is Jeff Bezos going to sacrifice a bull at Burning Man? You know, I mean, what, what are, it's, it's hard to imagine this post-Christian tendency taking institutional form. And as long as that's hard to imagine, the fact that the institutional churches are still Christian means that, you know, Christianity still has a sort of a really important and maybe decisive role and that heresy is still more important than post-Christianity. But I think if you were going to answer no to the question of this title, that's what you would imagine happening. You would imagine a kind of, a kind of repaganization of Western and American life pointing towards a bizarre future where a Christian alliance of the very Christian powers of East Africa and China take on the pagan empire of the United States of America, um, which is unlikely, but it's important to talk like this to be provocative. So on that note, I will conclude. Thank you so much.
Um, and uh, I'll keep you for 12 minutes and or 15 minutes, as long as you guys want to stay, honestly. But um, yes. Oh, we, and we have microphones. Yeah. Hi, Adam Brickley. I work here at Heritage. I found it interesting that you associated the idea of Christianity with the idea of authority and traditions, whereas a lot of modern Christianity in America has drifted in a less institutional, non-denominational, evangelical direction um, that kind of has some features of the eat, pray, love uh, mentality. So I was wondering if you'd comment on the state of the religious clade in terms of how that works in an increasingly decentralized, evangelical, non-traditional yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think basically the most successful traditional expression of Christianity in the last 30 or 40 years has been the one that is most naturally suited to a more individualist age, which is evangelicalism. And you can, you know, you can see this in the numbers. There is a robustness to American evangelicalism that doesn't just exceed mainline Protestantism. It also exceeds Roman Catholicism as well. Um, and I think of evangelicalism as sort of occupying a zone, you know, in my artificial categories, right, sort of occupying an arc that, ha that takes it, on the one hand, into the more traditional zone, because there are a lot of evangelical megachurches that are sort of sola scriptura, you know, take, take biblical authority seriously. They don't have a traditional denominational architecture. They don't have that kind of authority, but they have an idea, a strong idea of scriptural authority that connects them to historic Protestantism and through that to um, historic Christianity. But then another part of the arc, the more, basically the more sort of seeker sensitive and prosperity theology oriented you get, the more you have a form of Christianity that I think fits into my sort of, yeah, my sort of, I mean, it is the sort of Joel Osteen sort of spiritual center, right? And so I, I think it's interesting to imagine, you know, within my zone of possible futures, you know, you, you, can, you can imagine that leading to a split in evangelicalism at some point, that sort of the line, the line of biblical authority I mean, you, you see this in part in debates over same-sex marriage and homosexuality within the evangelical megachurches, right? That sort of the line of scriptural authority then becomes a point of division even between groups that are otherwise equally sort of well-situated for a cultural culture of individualism. Um, but I think the other question for those churches, too, is, you know, does it, does it last, right? Like, is there... Is, is there a phase where megachurch Christianity sort of does well as the last form of Christianity adapted to an individualist society, but then at a certain point, individualism becomes so potent that even that form diminishes and you're just left with a sort of the sort of the Rob Bell arc, right? Where Rob Bell, how many of you guys know who Rob Bell is? Okay, so Rob Bell is a, a, a prominent evangelical pastor who sort of embodies in certain ways originally sort of a certain kind of megachurch spirituality, maybe that's a little unfair, but is a sort of prominent evangelical pastor who at a certain point decides that the traditional Christian doctrine of hell is wrong and cruel, and out of that decision begins a migration that ultimately takes him to joining Elizabeth Gilbert on one of Oprah's 10-city tours of sort of spiritual teachers, right? So he sort of makes the migration from 
the sort of still biblically rooted form of megachurch evangelicalism to, in certain ways, the more the more post-Christian part of this spiritual middle. And I think you could imagine more of evangelicalism making that drift, or you could imagine sort of a six in in the scenario I'm describing where you know, basically people realize individualism kind of stinks and they want some institutional and communal communal experience. You could imagine sort of megachurch evangelicalism rebuilding denominational <laughs> ties and, you know, becoming more Calvinist and intense in certain ways or, you know, um, I mean, that's just, yeah, I, I, I won't spin out 17 more theological scenarios. But that, I think, I think those are all possibilities suggested by evangelicalism's current combination of strength, but also sort of its liminal, straddling different worlds um, position. So. Hi, uh, my name is Paul Bartow. I work at FIRE. And um, I'm curious, you mentioned the spiritual versus religious split, and I'm wondering um, what are some of the best arguments that you know of uh, about why we need a return to institutional religion other than community building uh, or social services that they provide, whereas the individualist would say, well, we have creative destruction and we don't necessarily need these institutional religious forms. Well, I mean, so there's a practical argument, right, which is that the idea behind creative destruction is that it's supposed to be creating as well as destroying. And the main problem in American religious life is that you've had creative destruction that, as I suggested with the Williamson example, hasn't effectively rebuilt these structures, right? And so just on a practical level, I mean, to pick a different example that's that's um, that's sort of fraught in a different way, like what happens to the Jordan Peterson movement, over the next 25 years, right? The, you know, Jordan Peterson is, in a certain way, occupying a different zone of this spiritual center, right, that's currently coded as male and right-wing, but is sort of a mix of, you know, Jungian and biblical stuff that is, that is interesting, right, to a lot of people, not just young men, but obviously especially young men, because it takes the Bible seriously, it takes sort of some forms of tradition seriously in various ways. But Peterson is sort of presenting himself as a seeker, right? That's part of what people find appealing about him. And the question is, is there a moment when that, you know, when the men and women, but especially men, sort of invested in Petersonism, whatever it is, right, form institutions? Does he form an institution? Probably not. Are there institutions that come out of this? Does this, is there a way for like, you know, for someone like Bishop Robert Barron, the sort of Catholic evangelist who sparked controversy by praising Peterson, is there a way for him to sort of import a little Petersonism into Roman Catholicism in ways that revitalizes Roman Catholicism? I'm not sure, but those are questions that I think creative destruction needs to answer, right? It's like, you know, you if you're always just trying to generate a new Jordan Peterson, you aren't delivering some of the practical goods that religious institutions in this Tocquevillian account have delivered. But I mean, ultimately, right, like that's all sort of dancing around the central question, which is that the reason to be 
a traditional Christian as opposed to Jordan Peterson or Elizabeth Gilbert is because traditional Christianity is true. And that, I mean, that's, and, you know, I, I don't think it's sort of an either or, right? I think if you think a traditional religion is true, you should expect it to have certain positive social consequences. It would be weird if the one true faith led to isolation, anomie, and despair instead of, like, flourishing families and happy communities. So I, I don't think it's a cheat. It's, I don't think it's a complete cop-out to say, you know, well, people who don't fully believe in this stuff should be interested in it because it has spiritual benefits. That doesn't eviscerate the, the truth question. But the truth question is still down there underneath at bottom, right? And, and that is why I sort of laid that stress in the talk on what I see as some of the inconsistencies in the secular world picture. I think those kind of debates, you know, they don't People join churches for a million different reasons, and community is probably more important than doctrinal orthodoxy or doctrinal reasonability to why the average person joins a church. But the long-term success and failure of religious traditions is connected to their intellectual plausibility too, right? I mean, I think, you know, one of the ways in which the internet weakens some religious institutions, I think, is by exposing members to knowledge that undercuts their beliefs, right? You have to, if your church doesn't survive the internet, it probably, you know, it has a problem. So in that sense, you can't end, the, the sociological argument is really interesting and a good way for pundits to write about religion with get, without getting into arguments about the virgin birth, which is useful in my profession. But the truth arguments are still there and, you know, they, they have to, they, they matter and they have a determinative role as well. Um, yes. Hello, uh, Greg Piper, College Fix, big fan of your book, Privileged, uh, very, very entertaining memoir. Um, Slightly embarrassing memoir, but thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you didn't discuss um, demographics and birth rate at all. I'm wondering if you could go into how that shapes your analysis and the kind of the scenarios you spin out. Uh, my, my church, for example, is full of infants right now. They're going off all the time during the service. And I'm like, that's, that's how we're growing. I don't know how many converts we're getting, but we're getting a lot of babies. <laughs> yeah, so this is, so obviously there's a, a real gap between the fecundity of one of the wings in my description and the other two wings. And that's been real for a long time. I mean, one of the reasons that evangelicalism thrived in unexpected ways after the 60s and 70s relative to the mainline was just that if you go back to the 1930s, evangelicals are already having more babies than mainline Protestants. So demography sort of bakes in changes sometimes that then get interpreted through other lenses. My general take, though, on this is my sort of decadence take. My feeling is that at the moment, religious fecundity enables religious traditions to sort of stay on the treadmill and sort of maintain themselves but without growing dynamically because the pull of the spiritual individualism and secularism in different ways is strong enough that it's hard to hold all those numbers basically, um, which is not to say that all of your kids won't, you know, still be practicing the faith in 40 years. Obviously, all of mine will be, you know, cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, three of them are girls, but that will be no obstacle. So <laughs> the, um, but I mean, if you look at, for instance, you know, the, the, a prime example of this, right, is the, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which 
ha- has had much higher fertility than the American norm, the fertility that Catholics are supposed to aspire to, basically. And if you go back and read sociologists of religion in the 1970s, you get predictions about Mormon growth rates that, you know, more, you know, it'll be 3% and 4% and 5% of the country will be Mormon. And that hasn't happened. Instead, Mormonism has sort of maintained itself in an era of general religious weakening. And it hasn't happened in part because, you know, as Mormondom grows, Mormon birth rates decline a bit, right? So, you know, as your church gets bigger and less geographically concentrated, people sort of participate more in the wider culture in ways that inevitably affect even their birth rates. But also there's just attrition that, you know, Mormondom gets bigger and more people fall um, away. And, you know, I think Mormonism has, because it's, well, without getting deep into debates about Joseph Smith, I think Mormonism has some particular issues that are different from the issues that other religious traditions face in terms of like the impact of the internet and other things. But I think that generally that picture applies right now to other other institutions. So I think outsized religious fertility helps sort of maintain this this sort of more zealous religious core, but you'd have to have a, a, a shift in retention rates or a really big fertility, a bigger fertility differential than you have right now for it to produce a sort of, you know, shallow, the religious inheriting the earth kind of dynamic. Now, I mean, there's a lot of interesting argument about this stuff in the stranger reaches of the internet. I mean, you can get into arguments, for instance, about, you know, it used to be right that people who were sort of self who were genetically predisposed to promiscuity had more children than the average and now they have less so you can imagine some sort of weird genetic drift that gradually makes the entire population more conservative over time um, but those are wild speculations and I'm just <laughs> offering them to you in that spirit uh, so two I'll do two more questions um, so sir and then I'll be uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about uh, uh, Trump. He appointed so many conservative judges. But on the other hand, uh, you know, some people say there are so much, too much sex, money, and debt court polarization. Do you think it would help Republican Party in long term uh, because uh, his, uh, you know, f- uh, appointing so many conservative judges than other, uh, even he did more than even Nick's, uh, President Reagan did. So do you think it would benefit Republican Party in long term? Thanks. Sure. Uh, so I was, you know, part of the extremely small church that gets called Never Trumpism uh, during the presidential campaign. So I guess my bet in 2016 was that the... Well, there was a lot of factors, but just to your particular question, that sort of the cultural import of embracing what Trump represented was more dangerous for traditional Christianity than the protection afforded by the judges that he would appoint. Um, I don't think that's a provable assertion, and I think that it's certainly possible that I'm wrong, um, but that was basically my calculation. I, I But I, I think... To be to generalize more, I think the the vision that animates uh, a lot of conservative support for Trump is, I think, more of a bunker than a growth mentality. In the sense that, sort of, there's an assumption that the culture the culture is against us, elite institutions are really against us. We need, 
you know, we need a fighter and we need protection and it doesn't, it's worth the cost among, let's say, you know, under 35 Americans who regard us as hypocrites. And that's, that could be true. Um, there are certainly moments in history when you need a protector, but it is more, it's a very defensive approach and it is, does come at a cost. I think that it is manifest if you talk to sort of people who I would describe as sort of lukewarmly religious who are especially younger, who find, you know, who, who treat religious conservative support for Trump as sort of a reason to reject religious conservatism. Um, so that I, that I think is the sort of fundamental cultural peril that ultimately, you know, Brett Kavanaugh can protect your church's liberty. And that's an important thing, especially given the drift of the Democratic Party. But you don't win back American religious culture with the Supreme Court, I think. Now, there is a, a more integralist uh, approach to these things that would disagree, but I think that's going a little bit beyond the bounds of your question. Uh, so one more. Um, Dan. Dan Burns, University of Dallas. Quick, quick question about the moral views of those three categories of people that you mapped out. I have a sense of what the kind of average moral view is of the third category, the religious conservatives or traditionalists. I have a sense of what the average moral view is of the second category, the secularists. Is there a common moral view of the first middle category, or are they divided in the way that you suggested between the, the left Oprah side and the Austin side? I mean, moral views like the kind you want to pass on to your kids. Is there a common moral core that they share, or are they more fragmented than the second and third category? I mean, I think that's a good question. I, th I think they're more fragmented in part just because they're a larger group, and I'm sort of meshing together a lot of a lot of different groups um at the same time i think you can discern a kind of you know that it sometimes gets overused but the sociologist christian smith had this phrase moralistic therapeutic deism right which sometimes gets applied as a way of understanding this center and i think i think it's sort of a useful way to think about it right there is a sort of common like you know it, it a certain emphasis on niceness and wellness, maybe, as sort of central moral goods um, and sort of a kind of therapeutic approach to religion and religious practice where it's about sort of helping you, you know, get through life in the everyday. Um, and, you know, that's not... I don't think that's incompatible. Like, I don't think that, let me put it this way. I think that can be a foundation for a deeper and more serious religious and moral approach. Like, I don't think it's necessarily the case that sort of the enemy of Christianity, that like what Joel Osteen is offering is, you know, the, the worst of all heresies or something. I mean, the nature of heresies is that they contain something of the truth and a lot of a lot of that sort of spirituality is you know it's being offered not to highly educated upper middle class semi elites but to lower middle class and working class Americans who are looking for contact with God and a sense of yeah a sense of sort of divine metaphysical supernatural support for them in sometimes very difficult everyday circumstances right and 
you know, I, I think it's it's important to combine a sort of theological and moral critique of something like the prosperity gospel with an awareness of why it's very, very successful um, among, especially among sort of upwardly mobile working class people with a lot of disarray in their personal lives. Um, so, so in that sense, it's not, it's not sort of a valueless morality. It's just sort of very basic and self-focused, I think, in a way that is, you know, is ultimately less than ideal, but is possibly a foundation on which to um, to build. But I do, but I do think there's, yeah, there's there is a lot of like you know, class variation in the audiences that these different gurus and spiritual figures appeal to. You know, I mean, when I talk to, um, we, you know, we do this podcast for The Times called The Argument, um, where one of my co-hosts, Michelle Goldberg, is lives in Brooklyn and has written about and spent a certain amount of time with people who are sort of in a zone that you would reasonably call sort of new age and pseudo-pagan and so on. And you know, one thing that I think she said when we did a podcast about this is like there's, you know, there's there's a feeling in a highly individualist culture and also this sort of in the age of Trump for people with left-wing politics of like the world just being totally out of control and you're looking for control and sort of a sense that, you know, the universe is responsive to you, right? And I think that, you know, that in certain ways that's like a core religious impulse that can become very, very dangerous in certain ways, but that's sort of the core. That, I mean, that's what, what's missing from the secular world picture that people definitely need is a sense that when things are going badly, it's not the end of the world. And there is there are higher powers that can help you, right? You know, what is where does AA start? It starts with higher power. Where does any sort of getting yourself up from a bottom start? It starts with some sense that like, you know, you can restore your alignment with the universe. Um, and that's that's certainly a common thread linking, you know, sort of pray and grow rich Christianity to I'm doing pagan rituals even though I don't really believe in Odin neo-paganism. Um, and that's, yeah, I think that, but that is what this center has certainly that, you know, that the secular world picture, it's meritocracy, right? It's, it is the belief that you can do it yourself. Even if people, you know, if you press them, they're like, well, okay, obviously the world is really beyond my capacity to control. But if you go to Yale Law School, you know, if you hang out in elite institutions, people think they can do it themselves. They think they've gotten there themselves and they think they can get to the next rung themselves. And that, I think, is what separates that vision fundamentally from all of the different spiritual alternatives. All of those alternatives come in wherever you are on the political or religious spectrum at the moment when you realize that, no, it's actually beyond you and you need help. Seems like a good place to end. All right, thank you guys so much. This was fun. Thank you, David.